Welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Farmer Regulatory Podcast, now enhanced with a musical interlude thanks to our savvy staff. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hops. Activity at the FDA heated up this week as Joe Biden apparently has decided who will be taking over the agency until the confirmed commissioner is in place, and multiple Trump administration officials have started departing. This is about the time every four years that political appointees decide decide to move on, but in the case of the FDA, there were many additional questions as the career as the caretaker commissioner pick remained in doubt. But we have learned that an FDA legend will be in charge when Stephen Hahn leaves on January 20th. Janet Woodcock, the longtime director of the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, who is now an advisor in the commissioner's office and in charge of COVID-19 therapeutic development for Operation Warp Speed, has been picked to become acting commissioner. This is a big move and one that many career staff inside the FDA will applaud. Sarah, you confirmed this for us. What did you find out? So um, what I find out is that um, Woodcock is being made acting commissioner at the request of the Biden administration, but it's also something that um, the current FDA was sort of planning for as well, um, which is, and it, it was why they sort of moved Woodcock to a new position in the office of commissioner um, a couple weeks ago. Now um, she was made principal medical advisor. You know, she was put in an office more closely with Han and has kind of been sort of shadowing him, it seems like, for a while. The thing that's unclear, um, and I haven't been able to get responses from um, folks at HHS and FDA, is what happens to her role on Operation Warp Speed, which seems like the Biden team is sort of perhaps reimagining anyway. Um, but um, yeah, certainly, Derek, as you said, I mean, this is a she's somebody who's a well-known name, obviously been in FDA more than, you know, 30 years. Um, so it seems like she's somebody that if the Biden team, you know, if it takes a while to get their um, permanent FDA commissioner installed, they could probably be pretty confident, you know, the ship is going to run smoothly given we're in the pandemic situation. Yeah, and it sounds like she may in fact be uh, a contender for the permanent job as, as well, Sarah. Right, and I've, I've heard um, some people saying that, um, have indicated she's being vetted as well. Um, and it seems like the the next, the other person in line is Joshua Sharfstein, who was Margaret Hamburg's deputy commissioner, um, had a short stint as acting commissioner as well. Um, David Kessler, former FDA commissioner, was the third person sort of known to be in the running, but we found out this morning he's going to be the chief scientific officer of Biden's COVID response team. So that seems like most likely, you know, he's in a different position for the Biden team. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with Woodcock and Sharfstein. There are um, some laws around how government vacancies work, which could complicate where it might be. It can be complicated to be in an acting role and be nominated for the permanent position. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there with Woodcock. Obviously, I think Sharfstein and Woodcock would be seen as having some significant differences. Woodcock's obviously kind of a career FDA staffer, very well known by industry and probably, you know, for the most part, pretty respected and liked. Sharfstein comes from a public health background. He's, um, you know, Derek wrote up a nice piece last year, about a year ago, 
on some proposals Sharfstine was suggesting for the FDA that I think might um, spook industry a little bit in terms of revisions to programs like um, accelerated approval, um, the Orphan Drug Act. Um, you know, he's been a big proponent for more transparency at FDA. So he, he definitely seems like he'd maybe be a bit more of a, you know, reformist or certainly shake things up potentially in in ways that might be unexpected and different from Woodcock. Yeah, certainly they have different, uh, um, you know, backgrounds and perspectives, although uh, I could uh, list a few things that, uh, um, uh, you know, Woodcock is uh, interested in doing that sort of industry may not be uh, um, enthusiastic about either. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, first and foremost, we're kind of the, you know, platform trials and, uh, uh, you know, master protocols, which uh, obviously are not, uh, completely foreign to sort of kind of how uh, um, companies operate, but I think they would sort of kind of uh, appreciate more autonomy in their uh, in their clinical uh, trial design than, uh, um, you know, this sort of uh, a format would uh, um, uh, would offer. So it's, a uh, you know, if uh, uh, Woodcock does sort of become uh, um, uh, uh, in a position where she can really, really kind of push that uh, stuff, and it's not clear to me that sort of kind of the FDA really sort of had that sort of leverage to begin with, but uh, that could be sort of kind of a significant change to sort of kind of how uh, trials are conducted. And, you know, it would be good because it would mean sort of a lot more trials, a lot more data, a lot more, uh, um, you know, patients being studied, uh, but uh, there would be sort of some, uh, uh, you know, loss of uh, um, autonomy on the uh, the industry part. Well, it, and and it, with uh with Josh Sharfstein, I mean, yeah, he he wrote that journal article, and there were, you know, they they may the proposals may have seemed radical, but I think he was just arguing, you know, to try and do some things to like stem what's perceived as abuse of the pathways. I mean, the orphan drug one, I think, in particular, was addressed actually this past year, or at least in part, because they were concerned that designations were going out too easily or were going out for you know going to things that didn't necessarily deserve them anymore and, and so forth. So I, I think he's just trying to kind of clean that up, um, which, you know, uh, you know, that the rare disease community and so forth, I'm sure would be, you know, would, 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 would be interested in just, you know, because you, you know, the more, you, the more you, you more, you more you leave open the, the possibility of abuse, the more likely that some kind of major, major change is made to, to stop it. So, um, I think that's a good point, Derek. That's where kind of that uh, you know you want to sort of kind of uh, uh, staunch the bleeding before it uh, you know uh, the wound gets infected. And sort of if the um, orphan drug sort of have become this reputation, have this reputation for sort of kind of uh, you know for uh, a place where sort of kind of people can sort of uh, you know cheat their way into uh, extra exclusivity uh, um, and not uh, in a way that sort of kind of uh, really sort of, you know values patients. That it sort of becomes a, a pathway that sort of is not uh, is not looked upon uh, kindly by. Uh, by politicians, so uh, um, that's a that's a great point. I mean, I I, I, uh, um, I think they would both be uh, um, you know very sort of positive picks for the agency, and uh, you know, vibrant agency is I think uh, uh, good for uh, um, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, despite the fact that uh, you know there's always going to be sort of some sort of friction between the regulator and the uh, the regulated. So it would be uh, um, very interesting to see sort of what either one of them did with the um, with, the, with the post. I'm a I'm a little curious about how Dr. Woodcock is going to approach this role or, you know, how, how she, you know, how she maybe reacted to being asked to do this. Because in in 2016, I, I interviewed her in, when she was celebrating her 30th year at FDA. And I asked her just, you know, point blank, do you want to be commissioner? And she said 
she's basically said no. <laughs> um, she's she. Uh, she said that one of the the issues that she, she liked being really close to the science part of this, which is why Cedar was perfect for her. And you know, being commissioner is which is overly administrative would take her away from a lot of the science. So you know, yeah, she could still you know stay kind of tangentially involved, but she wouldn't be you know intimately involved in kind of you know day to day issues with drug development and so forth. But um, you know, also, you know, she she also said during that interview that she didn't want to be senior director either. That wasn't like an ambition of hers when she first started at FDA. So, you know, <laughs> it, it, it could be that, you know, your career kind of evolves as it evolves and, you know, you kind of make moves as you as they come along, as opportunities present themselves. Yes. Yeah, so the, uh, who knows if the sort of uh, um, was sort of kind of in the back of her mind uh, uh, back then uh, um, or she just, uh, you know, generally surprised by the opportunity in terms of how it uh, how it worked out, and uh, you know, sort of kind of maybe sort of kind of what FDA needs right now is, sort of given all the uh, um, the problems they've had sort of kind of during the Trump administration and the uh, the the fights, uh, um, even in these waning days of the uh, the Trump administration between FDA and HHS, that sort of kind of having uh, you know a uh, a long time uh, veteran of the agency uh, put in there to sort of kind of to uh, um, to steer the ship, uh, even on an acting basis, would. Uh, Really, I think sort of be a great move for uh, um, uh, the uh, the staff morale. It'll be also be interesting to see, you know, how she kind of approaches if she takes like the caretaker type of position, or if she, you know, tries to be a little, you know, to be more active um, as the the acting commissioner, because you know, typically. You know, you, you the the acting commissioners kind of you know, like yeah they'll sit through budget hearings and and so forth. But you know they because they're they don't have a whole lot of leverage to you know to ask for things so to speak. You know they they really can't get a whole lot done there. But Janet is well experienced with you know dealing with Capitol Hill and 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 so forth. She's testified hundreds and hundreds of times. She's been on you know she's on TV all the you know on C-SPAN and so forth. So. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how she handles those types of um, situations and maybe, you know, maybe she could try and, you know, have a, somewhat of an agenda, uh, you know, during her tenure, you know, whether whether it's brief or not. Yeah, I, I guess the question for me would be, you know, given the current pandemic, how much <laughs> time, you know, an acting commissioner would really have to do much but focus on kind of the current crises at hand um you know obviously um there's probably going to be a lot of stuff going on with new vaccine applications coming in um you know biden wants to invest more in testing and manufacturing other things that fda would have to deal with so even if she sort of had the desire to sort of be more activist um would her time even would that even, would the current situation even allow it? Right. I mean, I think you know, as we've been reporting over this, uh, um, uh, you know, these past months during the pandemic, we're kind of the what FDA most needs most of all right now is just a, a rest. That's right, given the, uh, <laughs> the the all the, the the crazy sort of application review and everything else with the uh, um, you know the response to COVID in terms of sort of all the EUAs they've issued and uh, uh, the new guidances and sort of kind of to uh, to launch some. Uh, you know, ambitious new projects were kind of, uh, uh, even if sort of kind of the uh, pandemic can said to have been done. I, I uh, um, it may uh, um, 
you know, be something that the uh, uh, the staff is interested in, but it's it's also just uh, um, you know something that they have to uh, realize that they're still sort of kind of maybe will be in recovery mode uh, for a long time to come. Sarah, that's a good point. Maybe yeah, maybe her her big project will be project vacation <laughs> for for the staff to got to let them all recharge. <laughs> We also got word this week that FDA Chief Counsel Stacey Klinamine, as well as Deputy Commissioner for Medical and Scientific Affairs Anand Shah, would be leaving. Shah focused on leading strategic planning for the FDA, which included pand a lot of pandemic work. Um, among his accomplishments was a partnership with uh, NCI and CDC to validate COVID serology tests. He also worked with CBER on a communication strategy for the COVID-19 vaccines and led the FDA COVID-19 Pandemic Recovery and Preparedness Plan, which was release released this week. Um, Amin's departure was a little more divisive. Uh, Han announced she was leaving and named Mark Raza, a career official who had been Principal Deputy Chief Counsel since 2011 to the acting position. That was follow followed later in the day by an announcement that HHS had overruled Han and appointed James Lawrence, who was the Deputy General Counsel at HHS, to be the new FDA Chief Counsel. The move sparked concerns about infighting between HHS and FDA and the department attempting to exert more control over the agency in the waning days of the Trump administration. So I'm curious what uh, Matt and Sarah, you think of this? Is is this a concern? Is it miscommunication? Is it, it's probably both? I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it is a little uh, interesting to sort of see these uh, um, departures sort of in the, uh, um, in the run-up to the uh, um, the uh, the administration change, that uh, um, you know they uh, um, uh, they're both sort of kind of non-career uh, um, appointees. So uh, um, you know, uh, Shaw's a little different uh, um, uh, status, but uh, you know they would would be expected to sort of kind of to uh, to move on sort of kind of as the uh, um, as the Biden administration uh, came in, but sort of kind of uh, doing it sort of kind of. Uh, um, you know, with this little amount of time to let to go, it does does I think you're kind of suggest that uh, there's uh, um, you know there's kind of sort of it's, it's, it's an un unpleasant work environment perhaps, and sort kind of uh, that they uh, you know sort of want to emphasize that they're moving on to their uh, um, their next steps, and you know obviously in terms of sort of the uh, you know the dotted line reporting and uh, and all that that uh, you know really is not uh, um, uh, Commissioner Hahn's uh, um, uh, choice to make in terms of sort of who the uh, uh, the chief counsel is so the HHS is correct in that uh, um, in that sense, but uh, um, why uh, um, you know if we're going to put someone in there for the uh, um, you know the last uh, uh, week and a half or whatever it uh, um, ends up being that uh, um, uh, it, 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 it's a little bit of a mystery. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean it seems like um, you know the this FDA chief counsel kind of saga is not the only thing that's sort of raising some eyebrows about, you know, the relationship between HHS and FDA in, you know, the, the lingering days of the Trump administration. You know, we certainly saw a report put out by the administration yesterday that sort of paints some different approval speed data than maybe FDA has, you know, tends to do. There's, um, you know, they've HHS has put through some rules um, impacting FDA in recent weeks that I think, you know, FDA's watchers are not particularly thrilled about it. And I've seen some like reporting and speculation that, you know, the Trump administration is sort of trying to punish FDA, career scientists and so forth for, you know, things that they felt like weren't, weren't them not cooperating. 
um, perhaps during the pandemic or speaking out against moves there. So um, you sort of wonder how much there's just sort of like, how much of this is like, almost like childish sort of <laughs> antics at the end. Um, I mean, it, it's quite strange to me, uh, it, both not just in the FDA side of the um, HHS, but then CMS and so forth, like how many, how many kind of last minute kind of actions um, this administration is sort of trying to force through. I think that's a, that's a great uh, point, sir. I mean, every true kind of uh, outgoing administration, especially when there's sort of kind of a change of party uh, involved, wants to rush their uh, their stuff through. But this were kind of the, uh, um, the almost mean-spiritedness of it is sort of kind of a, uh, Unusual. I mean, we talked about this a little bit about sort of kind of uh, you know how Trump dealt with FDA on the uh, um, on the vaccines, but sort of kind of there's one approach that we're sort of kind of FDA could take credit for uh, the you know the uh, or the HHS could take credit for the near record number of approvals and the uh, the incredible fast review times for uh, um, uh, some of them, uh, um, but instead this sort of kind of came through with this uh, this proposal to sort of make them report about, uh Based on the statutory benchmark from uh, 1962, which seems like an effort to to embarrass them, and uh, um, you know, it just uh, you know, it's not like it's incorrect. It's sort of kind of the, the, the six month is still the uh, um, you know, sort of kind of the uh, um, the technical rule as to sort of how fast they should review things. But uh, um, to emphasize the uh, the fact that sort of kind of that uh, you know, under the under under our administration, that sort of kind of they 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 didn't live up to that statute as opposed to sort of kind of. Uh, under our administration, they had record-breaking reviews. It seems like a uh, an odd approach to uh, um, to label your uh, um, your achievements with as you as you go out the door. And there's there's always been this um, sort of very libertarian element, I think, to some of Trump's views about how FDA should function, um, and it seems like some of that is coming through too in these later actions. Or so, I mean, that's sort of one my. Maybe this is my over-interpretation of that report, but are they trying to, you know, go back and sort of make these, you know, just get their last minute kind of remark or edge about, you know, the agency being slow and sort of a barrier to people getting drugs, a la the right to try debate and that sort of thing. Well, and, and we had this, you know, we had this kind of discussion when the Trump administration was coming in, because I remember writing about how there was a flurry of guidances and and stuff you know kind of coming out in like December and January of was that 20, 2017 because in part because the FDA people were kind of clearing the clearing their desks of all these projects before the administration changed over but then there was this kind of undercurrent of you know we need to get this done before the new person the new people come in and potentially tell us to stop and, you know, and then there was all kinds of there was a lot of talk about whether or not, you know, because some of the people associated with the Trump administration at the time were were talking about how there shouldn't be, you know, you didn't need a review for efficacy. You only needed safety reviews before drugs should be able to go on the market. And, you know, th those kinds of things. So we were we were all wondering if, you know, those kinds of issues were going to kind of bubble up there at the beginning. So maybe this is, you know, you know, <laughs> a little bit of a reminder, so to speak, that, you know. That, of where we started from. Well, finally today, we're going to take a look at some shifting dynamics in the pharma industry as the Trump administration comes to an end. After the horrific riots at the U.S. Capitol, many companies made public statements that they would no longer donate to federal candidates who did not support certification of the Electoral College vote. 
Among, there were, among them were three large pharma trade groups, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, and the Association for Accessible Medicines. But the interesting part of this is that the political donations for them already were shifting after traditionally supporting, after traditionally supporting Republicans, pharma and bio in particular increased donations to Democrats in 2020. As of December 26, donations from both groups to Democrats during the cycle had exceeded 2018 and 2016 levels, while GOP donations were sort of flatlining. More data likely still to come in, but the industry groups obviously want to ensure they support the winning side. But do you think this kind of shift will uh, will endure going forward, or is this kind of just a natural kind of ebb and flow of, of things? Uh, I think it's uh, probably a reflection of the uh, political savvy of these uh, organizations and just sort of reading the tea leaves. And, uh, you know, as you said, the uh, um, the the fact that we're kind of the, the – uh, um, the Democrats, uh, you know, ended up with uh, um, control of the uh, House, Senate, and uh, White House. Uh, you know, meant that they uh, they got their their polling projections uh, correct and sort of and uh, um, you know made sure that they uh, um, you know showed that they uh, were willing to work with the uh, the folks that are now that they now have to work with. And it's not like they're not donating to Republicans, and they will certainly uh, donate to Republicans again. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, political history, uh, you know, uh, given that the president's party. Uh, um, almost always loses during uh, um, the midterm in terms of number of seats. You know, uh, control of the uh, House and Senate seemed likely to flip uh, back to Republicans in the 2022. We, we may see the uh, the contributions, uh, um, you know, take a take a turn uh, as well uh, um, because of that. So I think uh, uh, there's obviously uh, um, this dynamic that sort of the uh, the, uh, the the riots on on Capitol Hill were uh, um, were quite disturbing and. Uh, um, you know, uh, distressing on a number of levels, and uh, um, the particular uh, um, uh, policy reflects that. But the I think the the broader trend just sort of shows the uh, political savvy of how uh, um, you know of how you know successful uh, um, uh, associations uh, uh, you know target their uh, um, campaign artillery. It it seemed like the drug industry had, had been sort of in a tight spot for a number of years with the Trump administration because. Um, you know, he he wasn't the traditional Republican with in terms of how he approached pharma policy. Um, and he also was just seen as so um, unpredictable. And that's not something industry and business tends to like to begin with. So if the Republican Party kind of shifts back um, to, to perhaps more um, of the pre, like the pre-Trump era, that could change the dynamic of um pharma donations as well, um, is particularly if, if we see Democrats go hard on drug pricing issues in the next couple of years. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't expect the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, the money flow to kind of move, you know, to, to stay with Democrats if all of a sudden, you know, issues like, you know, like drug pricing become, a, you know, at least really heavy handed and uh, really push hard to kind of get that, to get something done on that, on that front. But uh, you, you never know. They could, uh, they could come up with an agreement with, uh, you know, between the two to get, you know, to at least say they, they did something. So, well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes or SoundCloud by searching for pharma intelligence podcasts. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. 
Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. And enjoy the music.